Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Welcome back, everyone. This is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday, and I'm joined as usual by Dr. Joe Boot and Nathan O'Black. Gents, good to see you again. And this week, we are creeping up on Christmas. It gets closer every day and every week, and we thought that we'd spend another, another session this week talking about Christmas generally, and in particular, Joe, uh, you've got uh, you've got an article and a letter that you've uh, just recently written that we're looking to publish in the next couple of days, and you can find that at ezrainstitute.ca. But as I was going through this, one of the uh, one of the things that uh, jumps out of, at you is that, uh, and one of the things that you mentioned almost almost in passing last week about Christmas is this is where I'd like to start is that. Uh, Christmas is a declaration of war against the enemies of God. And I'd just, uh, just like to begin here by reading a few sentences that I'm uh, excerpting from this article. And I'll get you to uh, maybe comment and clarify and expand on, uh, on what we read here, Joe. You write, We must recover this fundamental insight that the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ were an act of war against everything that opposes God. That Christ's lordship is to be extended and made manifest in every area of life and thought, that he's placing his feet on the neck of everything and everyone that opposes him in history. Appreciating the fullness of the Christmas message is key to effecting an inner renewal of the Christian way of life. Without such renewal, it is difficult to see the needle of our culture moving away from the idea of the total state. Now, Joe, there's a lot in there. Uh, maybe you could start at the end of that section that I wrote, uh, that I read, and comment on what, uh, what the message of Christmas has to say to the total state. Mm-hmm. But I think what the, the rub of what I'm trying to get at in this article is the way in which, because of the cultural accumulation around the Christmas festivities, how we can even as Christians, sometimes miss the full force of its message. I mean, after all, in the incarnation at uh, Christmas time, the obscurity of Christ's appearing and the lowliness of his appearing as a child, as a baby in the manger, uh, and the the fact that it was very difficult for people to recognize for the most part exactly who this was i mean isn't this joseph and mary's son it was said later mm-hmm. uh, of the lord jesus don't we know him don't we grow up with him doesn't he grow up around here yeah he's the carpenter's son it's the carpenter's boy um and of course we have an insight because of the presence of the wise men from the east and the shepherds and the announcement of the angels as, as to what was going on but it's easy for us with the cultural accumulation of the festivities of uh, the nativity scenes that we can, Christians are in danger of also reducing this to a message of baby Jesus, meek and mild, 
the cattle's are lowing, the baby awakes, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, you know, in that uh, noted English carol. Um, the truth is he probably did cry um, and uh, make a fair bit of noise like any other baby would have. So it's easy for us to get into this frame of mind where we're just thinking about peace, love, goodwill, um, and uh, isn't it wonderful to be inspired by the hope there in the birth of the child? Well, there's nothing wrong with some of those things as long as it doesn't get reduced to a kind of sentimentality that misses the identity of the Christ. A Christ who is born into a pagan context governed by the idea of the total state. And by that we mean, by that I mean, uh, the notion that what uh, for the vast majority of people living in the Roman Empire at that time, uh, their religious life, their their whole life, was circumscribed by the uh, idea of the total state, the imperium, the emperor cult, uh, and the permission that had to be granted by the Roman authorities for any cult to exist within the Roman Empire by first doing obeisance to Caesar. Uh, and the, the, the revolutionary character of what was taking place in the birth of this King of Kings and Lord of Lords at Christmas. And we see the immediate opposition of the state to the, uh, this arrival uh, that's typified for us in the hostility of Herod. And Herod, um, in the name of saving the nation, decides to, well, let's call it ban Christmas. Uh, he tries to prevent anybody really worshipping the king of kings. He tries to deceive the magi from the east, and he is bent on the murder of the king of kings and the lord of lords from the beginning. Um, and this, uh, this, this sort of that aspect, let's say, of Christmas easily overlooked, isn't it? Not the one we tell as our bedtime story to the little ones that Herod sent his soldiers to murder all of the children, the, 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 the males under the age of two, I think it was, um, in the entire city, uh, all in the name of saving the nation state. Um, interesting that, isn't it? Because we're being told how banning Christmas right now is uh, all in the name of our of us being saved from a virus. Um, so, you know, this is not the first time um, people have tried to ban Christmas and the worship of the King of Kings because Herod tried to do it. Uh, so this, this is what we mean by the total state, the, the state which subsumes, governs, uh, regulates, every area of life, relates to all, uh, all the different aspects of life, the family, uh, the what would become, of course, the church in the ancient world, but the church today, um, business, economics, etc., all in a parts-to-whole fashion, a, a state that is total, omnipresent, and all-powerful in our lives. And uh, the Christmas message fundamentally militates against all of that. Let me give you... Uh, maybe we can come back to some other scriptures, but so one scripture when Mary is carrying the Lord Jesus and she goes to uh, see Elizabeth, her cousin, 
and uh, when she when Mary appears, Elizabeth says that that her child in the womb leapt, which of course is John the Baptist. And this is what Mary says. Of course, we know it as the Magnificat, uh, but this is what Mary says. She says, "For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name." And his mercy is on all those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich. He has sent away empty. And, uh, (coughs) excuse me, a similar, uh, what an amazing statement that is. Um, that Mary makes there. And a similar thing, when Jesus is taken as an infant into the temple, Simeon the priest takes Jesus in his arms and he said, here is one who will be for the fall and rising of many in Israel and a sign that is opposed. Now that's the beginning to get us towards the the essence, the rub, the, the center of what Christmas is really about. And that's what I'm driving at in my article. Let's not miss the central message here. So looking at our current situation right now, uh, Caesar's telling us that uh, we're not able to gather with our families at Christmas. In many cases, especially I'm thinking of Manitoba, BC, much of Alberta, we can't gather as a church community. But what would you say to those that, uh, you know, their argument would be, well, that's that's simply the observance of Christmas. Uh, the state, Caesar isn't telling us that we can't celebrate it. We can't reflect on the incarnation. We just can't observe it in the way we've done in the past. And it's only, it's only this year. Uh, Christine Elliott just mentioned this week that there's, you know, next year, I'm sure we'll be fine. You'll be able to gather like you normally have. But this year, we're not going to do that. We're not going to observe it in that way. Well, I would say to those who think it's adequate to... Uh to uh, just observe it um, on your own. I'm kind of thankful that that wasn't the posture of the Magi uh, <laughs> uh, or, the, uh, or the shepherds to whom yeah. the, announce, the, the, the birth of Christ was announced. Uh, the Magi could have just looked at the star and said, oh, isn't that an interesting astrological phenomenon? Has a king been born? Let's observe that together right here in our own home. No, they went. And uh, they went and worshipped, as did the shepherds. They could have said, oh, well, let's hang out here in the fields and observe this in our hearts. See, the modern state is quite comfortable with the notion that you observe anything in your head. You know, you can, uh, you, you can have whatever posture you like towards uh, sexuality and gender and uh, euthanasia in your head. Just don't say anything. Uh, don't um, uh, rally around that posture. Don't publish on that. Don't counsel anybody in that direction. So this notion that um, it's adequate to have a kind of Gnostic, docetic Christianity, a kind of, uh, it's just, a, it's just a, a, a private, secret, purely mental, purely spiritual idea. But it's not an incarnate reality. I mean, this is the purpose and, of course, the meaning of the Lord's table as we come to the emblems of the Lord's table. It's bread, it's tangible. There's wine. You can really taste it. You can, you can feel it going down into your stomach, the warmth of that wine. And in that moment, as you eat that bread and drink that wine, you know you're reminded that you participate in Christ who is the living bread. 
Um, why didn't the Lord just say, well, you know, picture bread and wine, imagine bread and wine, and that's what I am. No, we have the emblems, we have the symbols gathering together to worship, to come around the Lord's table, to sing his praise. Um, I'm pretty sure the angels weren't socially distanced when they appeared to the shepherds. Um, and they sang the praises of God, and then the shepherds were called to worship. This is where you're going to find him. He's wrapped in swaddling bands. He's lying in a manger. Go and worship. And uh, I think it's just, it's not enough to have this kind of ethereal idea. No, we are, we're commanded to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. We all with unveiled face behold the beauty of the Lord. Um, we come together for that purpose. So no, there is a qualitative difference uh, between those things. So, um, I mean, we've had, you Nathan, since you've raised it, I mean, let's think about this for a moment. And I've had calls, by the way, from from priests within the Orthodox Church about this in the, within the last two weeks, that their churches are in total crisis. If you think about it, we were locked out of the churches for the celebration of the resurrection, for Easter. Most of us tolerated that. It was an unknown situation. We thought, well, we're going to give the state the benefit of the doubt right now. Now we're being told uh, in many instances, most instances, that you cannot gather for worship as a gathered congregation for Christmas as well. These are the two most important festivals of the Christian calendar, celebrations of the Christian calendar. They punctuate the year with meaning. That's the idea of a calendar. It's why you have a birthday. Uh, is that it punctuates the year with meaning and significance as it focuses us on what is most important. Christmas especially helps us as we face the new year and writes us. It sets us uh, correctly for the new year. Um, and those two most important festivals are effectively being cancelled by the state. And for churches like the Orthodox, where a majority of their people will come at uh, for worship during Easter and Christmas for the resurrection and the Christmas festivities, that's when they do their giving. Many of these churches are now financially on life support. So this is a this is a critical time. It's a critical feast of the of the church. It's been vital to the Christian calendar. I mean, did not the birth of the Lord Jesus shatter our own history into two parts? BC and AD? Isn't our whole the whole dating system of our of our of our calendar? Every time you write a check, every time you fill in your date of birth, you are dating your own birth from the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the this is the moment that shattered history. And um no state has authority to cancel Christmas. Mm -hmm. It seems that uh, Mary and Herod they they really got the the political implications a lot better than a lot of us. That's have. a very that's a very good point. <laughs> it's a very good point. Uh, one of and uh, one of the things one of the, that I love about Christmas is Christmas carols, and part I think part of the reason that we all love them is. Uh, Partly because they're they're seasonal, as you say, they they punctuate this uh, this time of year and our whole our year with meaning, and you know that there this is meant to be uh, a particular and special and set apart season. Uh, but they're also saturated in scripture, and uh, mm -hmm. I'm just thinking now as you're talking about uh, the line from the carol, 
second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. And that, uh, that identity of, uh, identity of Christ as the second Adam mm-hmm. and car- carrying on with that, we, we identify Christ as not, not just the second Adam, but the last Adam, the, uh, the one who succeeded where our first, uh, our first parent failed, who obeys perfectly, exercises perfect obedience. And in that, um, exercises perfect dominion mm-hmm. as he announces and inaugurates the kingdom of God amongst us. Mm-hmm. So all that being said, Joe, um, we've talked a bit about the, the political implications. Can we pivot a bit to some of the cultural implications of what Christmas means? Mm. Yeah. The interesting, as we start thinking about Christ as covenant head, mm-hmm. Uh, the truly obedient son and the the true dominion man, you know, of Psalm eight, yeah, uh, where you have you it want it, uh, at both at, this, uh, at the same time you're thinking of when you read Psalm eight of Adam, and then Christ, and then of course in Christ uh, a new humanity, a new race. Um, I think when we sort of wrestle with the whole idea of culture cult we talk about this a lot don't we cultus worship it bears repeating though and it bears repeating uh you know a few more scriptures come to my mind um the couple of them may be a little bit more obscure than others numbers 24 17 i see him now i see him but not now i behold him but not near a star shall come out of jacob a scepter shall rise out of israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. Um, or you've got Ezekiel 21, overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. It's, it's, it's echoes there of the end of the book of Genesis, until he comes whose right it is to rule. And of course, this is all uh, a restatement of, of uh, Genesis 3, and the seed of the woman who is going to come and bruise the serpent's head. Uh, the, um, the, I think it was there in the Hebrew, actually, that Eve, um, when she gives birth to Cain, says, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. And her expectation there is that she's given birth to this one, the, the, to the Messiah, to the Redeemer, to the, to the second or the last Adam. Um, uh, let's consider this uh, very familiar text from Micah 5 at Christmas. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings are from of old, from everlasting. So here you've got this reference right back to actually the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ancientness of the promise. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this one shall be peace. And then, of course, in Psalm 2, which we won't read all the way through, you've got that marvelous uh, statement about the 
the fullness of the cultural implications of the identity of the son, who's going to uh, have the nations as his heritage and the ends of the earth as his possession. And the kings are instructed to kiss the son, to be obedient, and so on and so forth. So uh, the when we think about um, culture, we need to be thinking in terms of worship. And as this message penetrated the first century church and uh, the early believers. Uh, I mentioned earlier the, the the Caesar cult, where the Caesar was Pontifex Maximus. He was he was high priest, mm-hmm. and that was what gave shape to Roman cultural life. I mean, it, it shaped the it was it was behind the idea of the amphitheater. Uh, it was there in the processions and the festivals that the Roman people celebrated. Um, which is why when when Christ, the new king of kings, the second Adam, the last Adam, Adam breaks onto the scene, it was inevitable that he would shatter the calendar, uh, that the whole idea of, of, of the festivals and the feasts, which of course are all kinds of feasts are there in the Older Testament, right? which again punctuated the Jewish year with its significance, that, that our calendar should now be punctuated with this new cultural significance. Um, of the reign of the Lord Jesus. Now, of course, in some of the Episcopal, uh, very traditional churches, they have many more feast days than uh, Christian feast days than than most evangelicals like us and Reformed people would recognize. But nonetheless, the point is that it's reflected in the in the cultural life um, of of the people, and uh, the. <laughs> it's going to be absolutely necessary that we recover this this idea of the kingship of Christ that he is king of kings and lord of lords that uh, you know the angels are proclaiming hosanna in the highest um if we are to see the as we said earlier the needle move culturally yeah. because it's not just that we make an abstract declaration of God's dominion at Christmas. Either we just make some sort of theological and pious statement that there is this heavenly king. Because mm-hmm. the point is that the heavenly king, as Philippians 2 tells us, left his throne and he was incarnate through the Virgin Mary, was born into the world uh, to establish the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, and to birth a new race. If anyone be in Christ, they are new creatures. The old is gone, the new has come. And, and, the, and so we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And so that means the fleshing out of all of this in cultural life. And so as we look back on the history of the Western world, of course, it's affected how we coronate our rulers, how people take their oaths of office on the Bible, how we viewed the life of the court of law, of, of, of swearing an oath and of perjury, um, how we governed our days and weeks and the, the regular routine and flow of the Christian calendar. It was even there in, I mean, every Sunday, the lexicon that the readings of the church of Old and New Testament week by week, it was laid out for the entire year. And I think to some degree, sometimes we've, we've, we've lost something there as, as evangelicals, something of the rhythm of the, the, the annual rhythm of the life of, the, of a Christian people. And as we've become more and more secularized, we see those things as less and less important. Mm-hmm. 
But it permeated this kingship of the Lord Jesus, permeated all of life because here was the new high priest. Here is the new Pontifex Maximus. Here is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And perhaps we can come back to that in a moment with the book of Revelation and what John sees. Mm. So Joe, in light of all of those things you just highlighted for us, what uh, what is really at risk if we're not heeding some of these things going into this Christmas season? That's a good question too. I think the the di- the ongoing dilution of the significance of all of this. I mean, mm. we've talked already on the program uh, in past weeks about the dilution of the significance of the church of the gathered people of mm-hmm. god the dilution of baptism and the lord's mm-hmm. supper and so on and its mm-hmm. significance and i'm sure our listeners are making those parallels right now. yeah they must yeah, be yeah um and if you if we've canceled easter in this in the political sense if you then cancel christmas uh and and we sort of unthinkingly acquiesce to that and what do you and don't forget people are being told that they can't even gather in their own homes mm-hmm. In many instances, mm-hmm. in some provinces here. So, uh, I think what's at stake again is the is this cultural memory, is the rhythm of the significance of the Christian calendar, and of the profundity of that uh, reminder um, of Christ and His true identity. Um, I think Herman Doivert actually, in a very insightful way. Uh, you know, in, in thinking about culture, and many of us as Christians may be lamenting the state of our culture right now. I know that's always in the back of my mind, if not in the forefront of my mind, when we think about the eager authoritarianism that we've seen this year, mm. uh, when we think about the, the, uh, the, the rapid growth of, 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 med- of a medical technocracy and the eagerness with which our political and elite class have adopted this and the ease somehow with which the sort of psychological manipulation of people has um, brought about sort of a widespread compliance with all of that. We can't simply, as we look back over the year, put it all down to external factors, right? That are outside of uh, the, the Christian faith and the Christian church, right? That there has actually been, what's at stake, I think, is that there are internal factors at work mm-hmm that have made this whole situation much worse than it needed to be. And uh, the, what Herman Doiver talked about in his book, um, The Christian Idea of the State, uh, is the inner decay, the inner decay within the Christian understanding. And he puts it this way, and I'm quoting now from his book. He says, this was also the danger of which Joshua, called by God, warned the Israelites when they had arrived in the promised land, namely, integration with heathen peoples and the search for a compromise between the service of Jehovah and the worship of idols. That's critical there. He says the, ser- the, the, the search for a compromise between the service of Jehovah and the worship of idols. He goes on, as soon as Christianity began to compromise learning, culture, and political life with pagan and humanistic philosophy, with its own view of state and culture, Christianity's inner strength was broken. And I think if we continue to, uh, in a certain sense, try and broker this compromise between service of Jehovah and service of the state, um, to compromise our, our 
what we know about the claims of Christ, our learning, what's left of our Christian culture and political life with these humanistic ideas, especially with the secular humanistic view that's all around us today of the state and culture, the inner strength of the church is being broken. And I think to some degree, as we look back over this year, you can already see how much the inner strength of the church has been broken in the West. Right, this was with this, this what's taken place would never right uh, this year would never have 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 washed with, let's say, the church of uh, the 18th century in England of of and uh, the 19th century of William Wilberforce's era. Uh, I don't think even a a, a pre World War II era church would have tolerated uh, all of this, and so I think we're already witnessing the fact that that much of the inner strength of the church and of Christianity has been broken. It needs rest restoration and recovery and renewal. And by uh, what, what's at stake again this Christmas, Nathan, I think uh, in a sort of mind, if there is a mindless acquiescence to this, is a further undermining of the inner strength mm -hmm. of the Christian gospel and its claims on our lives and of Christ's claims on our lives and um, over his church. Um, to link that just very quickly back to what um, Ryan was saying about the second Adam, the last Adam, yeah, let me just uh, continue a, a citation from Doyverd on the Christian idea of the state where he speaks about this important link. And he sums up the character really of Christ's transformative kingship and comp the comprehensive character of his rule. He says, in Adam, not only all mankind fell, but also that entire temporal cosmos of which man was the crowned head. And in Christ, the word became flesh, the second covenant head, God gave the new root of his redeemed creation in whom true humanity has been implanted through self-surrender, through surrender of the center of existence, the heart. So, uh, He's saying that the, the, the whole of the cosmos fell in Adam, uh, in our first covenant head. Now the words become flesh. He's the new covenant head. Now he's the root of a redeemed creation. And, and that reality is implanted in us by the Holy Spirit. Mm. It's this surrender of ourselves, the surrender of self in the root of our being, the heart, uh, that then works its way out, that surrender to Christ's kingship works its way out then into every area of life because the, the total cosmos fell in Adam and the total cosmos is being restored in the last Adam, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think that that reminds us what's at stake at Christmas and it links it to the question about how does this really impact what we so often talk about as an institute, which is the gospel and and culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, I'm just, I'm just thinking about this as you're, speaking here, Joe, there's a real sort of ironic power on display at Christmas. And I, I wonder whether we get uh, some of these carols that focus on so the baby Jesus. I wonder if that is a, a natural human sort of overawed response that the God who created all things, who holds all things together, would deign to mm -hmm. humble himself and come down this way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since they've been written, we've gotten focused on the manger scene, but that uh, that response of like jaws hanging open, we should uh, we should be awed by the fact that that 
Christ would uh, would humble himself in this way and would mm. put himself uh, on display for us in this way. Yeah, and I don't think it would. I don't think we should ever get over that. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I think that's something that, uh, and, and we need an annual reminder of it. That uh, the you know with the, the the great hymn of Philippians two, you know he emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, humbled himself, and so this this supreme act of of self humiliation, in becoming a fragile human being, uh, as a baby in the manger, uh, you know, born into, not into a kingly palace, but into that, uh, you know, cave, a hole in the, in the wall, if you will, a hole in the stone wall, um, where animals are feeding. We shouldn't ever get over the, 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 the marvel, the, the, the wonder of the incarnation. And I think it's important that, uh, at Christmas, you know this this one that the kings of the east the magi they bring their gifts of gold of frankincense of myrrh gold of course is about um kingship uh yep. rule power authority frankincense about priesthood uh the incense and myrrh of course about death mm-hmm. the sacrificial atonement and so what sometimes escapes us with the with the with the awe of the manger, though, is also the significance of the identity of the one who has been born. And you know, the Lord, in His wisdom and sovereignty, in the bringing of the magi, the kings from the east, did not want that to be missed. Right? The the, the prophets mm-hmm. say that, um, and the Gentiles uh, shall put their hope in Him. And here these Gentile kings come, uh, or magi, whatever you want to call them, um, and a ruling elite class, uh, and bring these offerings of tremendous significance. We don't know how many of these magi there were, of course, but we know what gifts they they actually brought. Um, And so, you know, part of the the marvel of Christmas is that gathering together Mm -hmm. as a congregation to collectively Mm -hmm. adore the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who humbled himself um, in this uh, singular and, and and remarkable way, and often it's an opportunity to gather with people that haven't really experienced the wonder of the incarnation, that haven't been born anew, and this mm-hmm. is an opportunity for Christians, mm-hmm. a wonderful one. That I think, I mean, we've said it a few times now. We seem so um, uh, okay with just mm-hmm. letting it fall by the wayside this year. Yeah, I mean, historically, there's the, the, the two marvelous times for fishing in the in the truly biblical sense, uh, fishing for men, mm. uh, are Christmas and Easter mm. for for, mm. for that very reason that it's those two moments in the year, and I think this is significant, right? The, these are two particular feasts, uh, celebrations in the year, which the even the secularized neighbor to some degree, even the happy pagan, still have a cultural memory of. And there is an, uh, an, uh, an unusual openness, uh, especially at Christmas, I would say, mm-hmm. even more so than mm-hmm. Easter, yep. among the happy pagans. Uh, I, I use that word guardedly. It's a superficial happiness. Mm. Um, amongst the, uh, the secularists, there remains this cultural memory of the significance of this event. I mean, I look down my street and there's lights on at mm. least every other house. Mm. Uh, and 
there is this cultural memory that there is a significance to this season of the year and people are asking questions about it. What an opportunity to be in your neighbor's home sharing the gospel. What mm-hmm. an opportunity mm-hmm. to, to, to invite people to join us in the Lord's house for worship, mm-hmm. to praise, to experience. You know, Paul, Paul's expectation in the New Testament is that people will come in amongst us and just being amongst us, they will say, the Lord is among them. The, the, the Lord's among them. That, 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 that is part of the testimony. Paul is clear about that, of the gathered congregation. So I think part of the response, Nathan, is to do with the fact that we've become such a consumerist, entertainment-oriented, individualistic culture mm. that we are very short-sighted. And I mean, I've had somebody telling me just this week, this very week, uh, when, um, actually, I probably shouldn't say too much of the detail, otherwise some, a listener might be able to identify it, but just this very week, uh, my wife had uh, a conversation with somebody um, where it became clear that many of this lady's friends, and she was expressing her frustration and disappointment, um, were just thrilled with the last six months of of Zoom church and that they really had no plans to go back to, uh, to, to public worship ever again, that online streaming was more than enough for them, that suited their lifestyle. And this kind of a, a thinking, I think, what a, what a loss in terms of evangelism and witness. Yeah. We've really squandered our mm-hmm. witness by voluntarily mm-hmm. and so quickly and readily surrendering yeah. mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. But the, we forget that the, 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 the church as the body of Christ is part of the witness. It's part of the testimony. Look at Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1. Christ has been given his head over all things to the church. The reality and existence of the church as the people of the king is part of the message of the gospel, that you can be part of a new people in the second Adam. His name's the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's building his church. And so, you know, the idea that this is some sort of optional tag on that, that you can, this is a take it or leave it scenario mm-hmm. is, is uh, a serious departure from, you know, the history of our, of our witness. Um, but, the Lord is bringing all these things into judgment. And I think if, um, if I can circle back to where we began as we wrap this up, Perfect. you know, we, we began by talking about the, the kingship of Christ in his subduing of his enemies, that the message of Christmas was God's declaration of war on Satan, mm. upon sin, upon all demonic activity uh and upon the curse itself um upon the 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 ruinous consequences of the fall and uh you know if we look at psalm 2 and then look at that in conjunction with revelation 19 it's the process through which christ is putting his feet on the neck of all of his enemies and let me just um uh uh quote that to you because it's uh, from Revelation 19 because it's so reminiscent of Psalm 2 which is that messianic prophecy about the birth of the Lord Jesus and his kingship and rule over the nation so the apostle John in John 19 is he's a member he's marooned on Patmos he gets this insight into the spiritual battle that's going on all around us and uh, this is what he says Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and his head on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called 
the word of God. And the armies of, in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. There's Psalm 2 there. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And John is seeing there, this is not some sort of chronological events for the, the, the Perusia sort of series of, of, of historically chronological happenings. This is, an, this is an insight into the battle of all history. The sword coming out of Christ's mouth through his people, striking the nations, and the process by which he uh, subdues the nations. That very self-conscious reference to ruling with a rod of iron is Psalm 2, where, where the scripture says that... Uh, um, in fact, the Apostle Paul says that God is making an en the enemy uh, the footstool for Christ's feet. In fact, let me just quote the Apostle Paul there from, Ephes uh, from 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Back in the time when David was writing Psalm 2, of course, um, the traditional practice was that a conquering king over another king would put his feet up on the neck uh, who is kneeling down. The conquered king kneels down and the conquering king puts his feet on the neck of the conquered. And that's the image that Revelation 19 is bringing up. That This is what God in Christ is doing in history. And the name on his thigh, the name that was engraved on his thigh from the very beginning, from the moment he was in the manger, of course, as a metaphor, is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that, that, that Christmas is a declaration of grace and of judgment, mm. of, of war and of peace. It's grace and judgment. It's war and it's peace that are uh, manifest and announced mm. Uh, at the incarnation, they're, they're all at work, and we don't want people to miss that this Christmas as we think about our cultural moment. Let me um, close with a citation from from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you, if that's uh, okay, Ryan. We got the time. We got the time to do it. Um, where he, uh, especially as we think about the challenge of our cultural moment, and many Christians this Christmas will be feeling discouraged. They're going to be feeling somewhat downcast. They're going to be feeling, many of them, frustrated, perhaps isolated. Uh, some maybe even feeling a little hopeless. And so um, in 1935, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is watching horrified at the emergence of the Third Reich, of the total state that we talked about, of a power state. and uh doubtless feeling profoundly discouraged about the com condition of the professing church and in a in a sermon a christmas sermon in 1935 he decides to preach on revelation 14 it's about the the conquering kingship of the of the lord jesus christ and his judgments and this is what he says in uh, uh, in this sermon as a reminder about the gospel, and I quote, he says, the gospel is eternal and remains despite everything. It remains the one and only true proclamation of God and his lordship over the world. 
And though there be thousands of religions and views and opinions and philosophies in the world, and though they construct the most attractive ideologies, and though the hearts of the people are moved and won over by them, they are all shattered by death. Just a parenthesis there from me. You know, that's interesting as we look at the whole COVID-19 situation, how the threat of death has shattered the confidence of so many mm. ideas, philosophies, and religions. Mm -hmm. He goes on, they must all be broken because they are not true. Only the gospel remains, for he has the power over all the powers of this world. Honor him and his holy gospel, because the hour of his judgment is come. And this judgment is the gospel itself. Mm. The eternal gospel is the judge of all peoples. Fantastic. And Joe and Nathan, thanks a lot for being here again this week. That's all the time that we have for, uh, for this episode. From the Ezra Institute, we wish you a very merry and victorious Christmas and reminding you that uh, from him and through him and to him are all things. Learn more about that by going to ezrainstitute.ca. We'll see you next week. Passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time